This is the Question in Bodies podcast, a catalogue of inconclusive conversations about culture, gender, bodies, literature, movies and horror. With me, your host, Howard David Ingham. In this episode, Bodies in Space with Gwendolyn Keist. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Question in Bodies podcast. And with me, I am really, really proud to have Gwendolyn Keist, who has just waved, but those of you listening at home can't actually see that. Gwendolyn is the Bram Stoker award-winning author of the novel The Rust Maidens, but has been incredibly prolific. Um, she's, there's a short story collection and her smile will untether the universe. She brought out a chapbook called The Invention of Ghosts. There's another short book called Pretty Mary's All in a Row, which came out. And Bone Set and Feathers came out, was it last year, I think? A year and a half ago. A year and a half ago, okay. So Bone Set and Feathers came out a year and a half ago. And Gwendolyn is just about ready to release a new novel or is just coming into the wild called Reluctant Immortals, which we're all very excited with. However, this is not the whole of Gwendolyn's presence because as someone said about someone else, as much as I'm a fan person about Gwendolyn's work, this pales into insignificance into how much a fan I am of Gwendolyn Keist. Because Gwendolyn is this fantastic voice for inclusion, for women in horror, and is also hugely into supporting new writers and up and coming writers. And Gwendolyn's um, website every week has a submissions roundup, which gives some um, markets and openings for new writers to break in and Gwendolyn's very committed to basically improving the community and the community is better because Gwendolyn Keist is in it so this is why I am so pleased to have Gwendolyn on the podcast as well. Gwendolyn is also I think the most unique voice in modern gothic fiction and we're going to talk about why that is now because we're going to talk about bodies and spaces which I think is a theme of your writing don't you think that's a theme of your writing do you think that's something that you sort of oh yeah yeah definitely I would definitely agree with that I mean I know what an ambry is because of you (laughs) and uh the man in the ambry is a story about um a young woman who develops a crush on the monster in the cupboards basically Mm -hmm. and grows spends her whole life writing to the monster in the cupboards yeah yeah, that's that exactly. That's actually exactly the way to describe it. That's funny. <laughs> it is good, and 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 Ambry is sort of a walk-in wardrobe, is it? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you see, it, it is defined in the story as well. It's just kind of, kind yes, of good yes. because I had no clue. But yeah, a, a lot, a lot of your writing, I think, deals with bodies in space. So in the Rust Maidens, there will be spoilers, but not as many as usual, I hope. But in the Rust Maidens, you have. Um, Cleveland, Ohio in the 1980s and a group of young women begin to reflect the industrial decay of a dying city Mm -hmm. in their bodies before eventually becoming the spirits of that dying city and fading into the fabric of the concrete Mm -hmm. rust and twisted iron of the um of the deserted foundry i think yeah. you have also and, and this sort of comes up in some of Gwendolyn's short stories as well i think he's got like um so i was i was reading um 
Oh yeah, 10 things to know about the 10 questions. This is a story about a very prescient story, actually. Have you revisited it since you wrote it? Since I wrote it, yeah, but not in the last few years. Like I would probably I think like- after 2020, 2021, it has a whole different meaning. People disappear. It becomes mm-hmm. a bit of a, a contagion is described in the story. You might also call it a pandemic. Yeah. And um, the reactions of the people around them to contain this pandemic and try and stop people, you have um, futile government gestures, you have people being isolated, and people eventually turn on people who are affected by mm. the disappearances. Mm. And damn. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things when you write things that are dystopian, you always hope that in a few years people will be like, oh, this is ridiculous. Not like, oh, this seemed like this was really like ahead of the curve. Like that's, yeah, that's really scary. It's been scary what we've lived through the last few years. Cause like it I've is, always been kind of scary. I think kind I of pessimistic about governments and, and people and everything at times. And then like the last few years, I'm like, oh, it's even worse than I thought. Like, wow, this is so terrible. Like I'm writing a book now that there's kind of like, not exactly a government agency, but kind of like an overseeing agency. And they're, they're kind of incompetent. And I would never have written that five years ago, except seeing how, how pretty much governments all over the world just could not handle this pandemic. They just Indeed, actually, have you, read, um, have you read Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach novels? I haven't. No, I haven't. I need to. Oh, I'm not sure you do until you finish writing what you're writing. Anyway, but yeah, I mean, um, but the thing about 10 things about 10 questions is, which is definitely, I love how it's structured like a questionnaire as well. It's kind yeah. of like, I love that. <laughs> um, it's that the people fade in much the same way as the rust maidens fade <laughs> into the, the landscape. And this seems to happen again and again, in your stuff, people exist. Do you think it's, what, what is it that about people and the architecture that surrounds them that makes this reflect itself in ourselves? Oh, wow. So I do feel like we kind of in ways, even if we don't want to kind of become what we're surrounded by to some extent. So it's like, for. For me, like the idea with the rust means just felt so natural. It's like, I knew I wanted to do something that was body horror, but I knew I didn't want it to be exactly something like say what Cronenberg's done, even though obviously there's a Cronenberg influence on the rust means. I think that's, that's very yeah, clear. Yeah. But at the same time, I didn't want it to be like, you know, Jeff Goldblum and the fly or what happened in the brood. I wanted to do something that was different. And I had just finished a short story that was about Cleveland. I thought, oh, you know, I have a lot of information, just like I did a lot of research and it was way more than I could include in the short story. And I'm like, how about body horror in Cleveland? And then it was like, well, how would I do that? And I'm like, oh, I just turn them into the rust and rot of Cleveland. Like, it was so natural to me because I think the way I look at us, even though yes, we are bodies unto ourselves, I think we're so influenced by everything that's around us. So to me, it was just like, oh, of course, like I'm going to write a horror story. They're just going to become like whatever they're around. And then that's like, so potent the landscape of of the rust belt which has only gotten worse in a lot of ways even since i've written that book like mm. i look around like cities in america and we're just decaying rapidly like even you know four years ago when that book came out it wasn't great but it's like you know we keep not saying we're in a recession here but we're in a recession you know what i mean we're, we're in, in a, a recession. housing yeah. crisis and and like you know, even people who own their homes, like the homes are starting to get really decayed looking. Everything looks decayed. Like, 
even small things like my husband and I went into the grocery store because during the pandemic, we just get them delivered to the car because my dad has um, uh, immune suppressed. And so I didn't want to like go in anywhere. Now we're starting to go back into grocery stores and you can't even find carts that work. Like they, they don't really work. They're like, they're bumpy and they're like, everything's falling apart from like the carts to the houses, to the people. It's like, everything is decaying right now. And it's like a really scary thing to live through, to be like, oh. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously we we met. The, the, the only time we've met face-to-face was in Stokecon in 2019. Yes. And that was my last trip to the USA. And one of the things I found most shocking about the USA was the state of everything. Um, I landed in Chicago and the friends I was staying with, Bob and Sue, they, they said, well, you know, I'd been up all night. I didn't sleep in the car on the way to Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan, and, uh, and you'd be fine. And um, no, I could not sleep in the way to Grand Rapids, Michigan, because the freeway was so badly maintained. There were yeah. holes all the way along. So it was bumpity, 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 bump, all the way along i've never been on a highway that was so dilapidated i go to grand rapids and grand rapids is is owned by the divorce and prince families um the amway dynasty who also own um one member of the one branch of the family owned blackwater and one prominent daughter of the family was betsy devos oh trump's education secretary yeah wow Um, Grand Rapids was weird because you had the middle of the town, which was full of beautiful, shiny things, mm-hmm. including an art gallery that I visited one day. Oh, nice. Um, which beautiful, huge art gallery that's quite expensive to get into, which had enormous galleries with maybe only three things in it because it's like one person's collection of stuff, one millionaire, billionaire's collection of stuff yeah. mm-hmm. in the gallery. And five minutes walk outside Mm. of town everything immediately got really run down so i mean we were basically staying in what amounted to a house that reminded me of the haunted house down the way right (laughs) and it wasn't even everything looked haunted and it's getting like that here yeah i I get the feeling that it's kind of getting like that everywhere right now i don't know if the pandemic made it worse yeah i I definitely think in many ways we're ahead of the curve in america northwest europe basically looks like science fiction to the rest of us yeah also there are parts of the uk that still look like sci-fi i mean london london's got tv screens on the bins you know television bins i mean why do you need to watch the news when you're like chucking away a crisp packet yeah i feel like we advanced technologically and we used it in weird ways like stuff like that like i might be able to go to pump gas and like there might be a tv with news on it i remember i've seen that in gas stations i'm like i don't need this but maybe you could fix up the gas station because like you know there's potholes like you said everywhere like that's like it's so funny i hadn't even thought about that but that's so like american roads they they tax people and they especially tax people who live in cities which a lot of times you know are people of color and they get all these taxes and yet they don't even fix up their roads with it. and it's like where does the money go who yeah, knows I mean, none of us know but it's like the infrastructure in this country is terrible there was just a bridge collapse in pittsburgh on a day that our president was coming to talk about infrastructure and i'm like yeah that's man. that's pittsburgh that's america right now that's amazing i mean i i, I mean you sort of say nobody knows but you've got a really really well-funded army yeah, I was honestly, 
really well-funded army and really well-funded police uh, forces. So yeah, that's really where it's going. Is, I is heard the that the NYPD was actually lending some of its equipment to the Ukrainian army. Yeah. That's not even just the NYPD, I don't think. I think I've heard that that's happened multiple times that like, because we have like totally militarized police forces. There are places that they're tiny towns and they have tanks and like they just get, they just, they, they use it like by giving people a bunch of tickets and then they get their tanks. So yeah, they've been able to send things over and I'm like, at least the stuff's leaving America. Like not, but like you said, they probably have enough to spare, which is really scary. It's really yeah, it's scary. terrifying. Terrifying, but you know, we don't have roads that are very good, but we have police forces that will arrest I, I mean, us. I mean, this, this, is, this is basically the cyberpunk future, isn't it? This is, I, I mean, you, you read some of the work of writers, some of the early work of writers like William Gibson and Bruce Sterling, where it's actually happening. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's terrifying. I, I mean, for, for my part, I, I was actually, I'm actually been writing some body horror fiction and some body, some horror fiction and some of it is dystopian in quality. And I, I had my protagonist be an escapee from a future England where um, trans people were sent to concentration camps. I hadn't expected that to be set next Tuesday. It doesn't, sadly, it, it seems like once it happens in one country, it starts happening elsewhere. Like, it's really weird how, like, once you start getting that kind of, like, legislation in one place, other places start doing it at the same time. Like, it's, we're all, it's like, horrifying. it's horrifying. about contagion. It's like a social contagion of, like, oh, this country did this horrible thing to take away human rights. So let's have this country over here. We'll do it, too. It's terrifying. It is terrifying. But, yeah, so these things are happening. And. Yeah, they do they affect are. us, don't they? They do affect yeah. the way in which we construct ourselves. There's particularly a novel, High Rise. Yes. The balance, balance like, likewise, you've got Crash as well, which, uh, you know, we all love Crash, which Cronenberg did a really faithful adaptation of, actually, Cronenberg's adaptation of Crash. I think I've seen all of Crash. I tried to watch it when I was fairly young, and I don't think I understood it. Like, I, I was <laughs> like, I think I was like 14 or 15, and I'm like, what is this? And like, I didn't understand it at all. I should go back and give it another try because I wasn't a Cronenberg fan like back then. I think his stuff just freaked me out. And like, then then once I got a little bit older, even into my later teens, I was like, no, this stuff is great. I love this. But I think it was like scary. I was like terrified of going through puberty to begin with. So then like anything that dealt with bodies just scared me more. I'm like, nope, 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 nope. That's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. um, I was always... Um as a kid scared of stuff with bodies and stuff. And, and yeah. then at, there was a point where suddenly my inhabiting of my body became different. And these things suddenly spoke to me quite powerfully. Yes. Yes. To I think I got to a point for me where it was like, I can look at these body changes and kind of see them, even if I think bodies are kind of monstrous inherently, all of our bodies, I think they're terrifying. And once I looked at it as like, okay, you can look at this more as empowering or something that you know you can own in some way. And so at that point that I'm like, okay, now I look at body horror differently than I did when it was like, I this is probably maybe too much information for people, but I was the very first person in my elementary school who started going through puberty. And that was horrible i mean it's like i was yeah. like 10 
I was like 10. Like there was no reason my body did that to me. It was like such a betrayal. And I was so angry because like, I was the little kid that was like, we should all be happy that we're little. It's only going to get harder from here. I would literally say that to other little kids. I wanted to stay little forever. And then I was the first person to go through puberty, which was such a nightmare. And so it was like, I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. So anything about bodies, it was like, I hated even being in a body for the longest time. And eventually I was like, okay, I've just got to get used to this. This is my body. I want to be in a body or not. I don't get a choice. I can't just be like a floating brain, which I think at that point I would have been a floating brain. I would have been way happy. Big moves. (laughs) Big moves. (laughs) Totally. But yeah, I was like, I'm not going to get that choice. So I'm going to have to figure out how to live in a flesh body of some sort. And so then I think that was the point where I was like, okay, body horror can kind of express the fact that being in bodies is terrible, but that you can also find kind of an empowering aspect of that. Because I consider the rust mains in its own way to be empowering. I know some people are like, oh, it's so sad. And I'm like, it is sad. But I mean, I feel like the girls are happy at the end. Like, I feel like they were happier than they would have been just staying stuck in that neighborhood. I think the stasis that they had in the neighborhood was more misery inducing. But then I'm the one who just said, like, I'd rather be a floating brain. And they're kind of like floating rust, right? Like, just kind of existing. Well, so maybe I gave them my happy ending that I wanted. Well, what I liked about it was I kind of, I kind of felt that they were actually, they were actually at one with the environment. And they yeah. were the environment. They were tutelary spirits of the environment. Yeah. And so to become... me, I'm like, that's happy. Like, it's sad that, like, they got, they weren't able to be with their families, that, you know, Jacqueline and Phoebe aren't still hanging out, and Don couldn't be with her baby. But, like, you know, I think overall, they're together, they're happy, they're not lonely. They found they each other together. as well. Exactly. Because they weren't friends before. Mm-hmm. And they find, they find a comradeship that they mm-hmm. didn't have before. You've got the pastor's kid. You've got yeah. a girl who's gotten teenage pregnant. You've got Jacqueline who's living with her aunt who despises her. <laughs> and, and Violet, isn't it, who, who's into photography, the, the nerdy girl. Yeah, the artist that they wouldn't let. And then Lisa, the, the real weird one that, like, you know, has the abusive dad. The really abusive that. dad, yeah. And the sister who works in the press who yes. may or may not That's be exploiting the story. And actually doesn't know herself. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Phoebe, who doesn't become part of this. Mm-hmm. And Phoebe's the narrator, and she basically... And we talked about this before. We talked about this at length before in, in the thing that we wrote together. But yeah. um, the idea... Phoebe, Phoebe's basically in exile, and she's exiled from society. And because she's exiled from society, she's sort of exiled from this strange magic of the place as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a kind of dignity as an exile in a lot of ways. This, yeah. I, I, I felt a lot of um, fellow feeling there. That, that, that sounded better in my head. But you kind of had this sense that she's able to stand aside because she doesn't have a choice mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. to stand aside because she's one of those girls who never really did anything wrong but got a bad reputation yeah and we all yeah. knew somebody like that when we were teenagers yeah, yeah. you know i know yeah. 
I mean, I knew several people like that when I was a teenager. And, yeah, especially for girls. I think girls can get these bad reputations. You're trouble. And it's like a lot of times you look at what they're doing. It's like they're not they're not doing anything. They're not even breaking any laws. They're just kind of there and they're just not like conforming. Yeah. And so there's just this idea of look how bad you are. Because I mean, I think to some extent I had that when I was a teenager. I mean, that's where it really came from. It depended on who you talk to, I think, because like, I didn't cause trouble in school, but I looked very goth and I was very like outspoken. You know, I was very much a feminist even then. And it was like, I think some people just looked at it as like, look at that troublemaker. And it's like, especially now that I'm an adult, at the time I was like, okay, this is just how people are. But the older I get, the less some of this stuff makes sense. I always thought when I was young, I'll become an adult and some of this stuff will fall into place. And even if I don't agree with it, I'll understand it better. It hasn't been like that long. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You didn't get my copy. Yeah, right. And it's like, the older I get, the more I'm like, now I'm the age that some of these people were like the teachers or administrators or just other parents. And I'm like, Oh, my God, I can't imagine acting like this to somebody who's just like, just a little outspoken, like, what is wrong with these people? Like, and it, it just shocks me. The older I get, I always thought like I'd understand it better. And I'm like, no, nah, I don't understand it any better. It actually makes less sense how people can be. But it's weird. We definitely like conformity in society. That's really a thing. We, we do. And some of us can't. Some of us are actually unable to. I kind of, I mean, you know, discovering as, discovering as a lot of people know that I was autistic very mm. late in life. Mm. Um made a lot of things make sense in a way that I didn't want them to make sense, you know. And to discover that even if I'd wanted to conform, and I did actually desperately want to conform sometimes, and I just couldn't figure out how. Mm -hmm. And you wind up in a place where you're in exile. You wind up in a place where you are misunderstood. You know, you go through different things. I mean, I think it also saved me in a lot of ways, you know, because obviously yeah, you need that, That's got... the hard thing with that kind of stuff, because I think sometimes if you are the exile, you can see things more clearly and you're less likely to participate in like bullying with other, like sometimes groups of people were bullied, but if you're more of an exile, you can kind of stand back and see like, oh, I don't want to participate in that, or I don't want to be part of this thing that's just hurting other people. So it's like, yeah, I understand like, you know, obviously that's, that's so, it's so hard, but at the same time, you know, I do think that there, there's a lot of empathy for people who are outsiders a lot of times. Not always. Sometimes people get angry when they're an outsider and become bullies themselves. But a lot of the people yeah. I've known that as we're talking about that kind of feeling of being in exile are some of the most empathetic people I've ever known because they know what it's like to be on the outside. And so they have just they have show more kindness to other people who are. So I you know, I've that that's just a thing I've observed throughout my life. So I'm always like, you know, being on the outside, sometimes you won't participate in like the cruel things that other people do and you have more empathy for people. So I think that's that's definitely a positive aspect. Of I, I think I think if you've actually spent and I know this has come up before in conversations I've had while recording these, but um, I think I think if you've never actually seen yourself represented, it's really easy to actually it's easier to have empathy for uh, the other people that you see in fictions and on yeah. um, things sure. because you kind of don't have anybody who's just like you. So you just like have empathy for people. Yeah. Clearly. You have a wider yeah. range of people. That's such an interesting idea that people who constantly see themselves easily represented are less likely to have that kind of empathy because they don't have to, because they just see themselves over and over again. 
That, that's something I'm going to think about. That's an interesting idea because just in America, you see the people who like have the most representation in say media are the ones who don't want anyone else to have representation. Like somehow, like a small number of films or TV shows or books that aren't about them, like blow their mind. Like how dare you? And it's like, and then half of these things, half of these things are actually about them. They just happen to be played by like, you know, it's like a cop show has a black lead on it. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, it's like, oh, wow. Like diverse voices in knocking, banging people's heads together. You know, it's just diverse voices in screwing people over. Diverse voices in bombing school children. You know, it's that's, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's like, well, something that's come up repeatedly in these conversations, and it's not not just for me, actually, although this is one of my hobby horses, so sorry, listeners, is that, please listen to more of these, um, is that um, representation doesn't need to just simply stop as like having a woman, a person, a cover, a colour, a trans person or a queer person doing the same things yes. that yes. everybody else does. Yes. I very much agree that that's a big thing. Like I've, I've also talked about that on other like shows or panels I've done that it can't just be swapping people in. We have to tell different stories. It has to be, because I feel like the stories we've been telling are the exact same stories that have always been told. And now it's like, and listen, I would still rather have representation in those stories than not. That's still better but I agree we need to have fundamentally different stories to tell different experiences I mean if nothing else it just makes for better stories like it's an unalloyed good yeah it's like do we want stories that are the same a hundred times over do you want like maybe the same story 95 times over and five times like something slightly different like yeah I very much agree with that we're not asking for much I mean it's one thing that one of my guilty pleasures recently for many years, my guilty pleasure was Poldark. Um, but one of my guilty okay. pleasures recently was Bridgerton. Um, okay. And Bridgerton is, if, you, if, if anybody listening doesn't know, it's basically a residency drama, only mm-hmm. they've just decided to let people who are people of colour, black and Asian people, um, mm-hmm. get to wear the frilly shirts and tight trousers and the heavy-cleavy dresses. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which they sort of where and you know you get I get to say things like my honor demands that I must leave now, my lady, or um, or, or, or my dow- the question of my dowry, Lord, Lord Bridgerton, you know, and things like that. And um, you know, um, <laughs> shall we have this dance? I get to, you know, and it's kind of cool. I get to deliver that stuff, but it's basically just just horny yeah. Jane Austen Star Trek, like horny Star Trek for Jane Austen fans, because it's about as close to history and as close to us in time as Star Trek is. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, although, although I'm, I watched an episode of Star Trek Picard last night, which was set next year, which was kind of, they travel back in time to 2024. Um, which, Don't come back. Which included ICE making raids in Los Angeles and like rounding up, rounding up black, black and Hispanic people. It's just like, I'm not entirely sure I want to see that story. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure it's like, if it, a bit didactic, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I mean, okay. So I mean, going back to body horror, this is the thing. So 
obviously there's various modes of body horror and there are various ways in which body horror is expressed in different things. And I think in your work, body horror is connected to something and it's connected to something. Because I, I was thinking about this because I'm writing this body horror book and the body horror, the, the vehicle of body horror is alien. Mm -hmm. It's from outside. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's um, spoilers, massive spoilers, mushrooms from space. But anyway, anyway, um, I don't know where I was, yeah, body horror, body horror. We're talking, talking about body, body horror and your, your body horror is from the area you it's it's from the place you're in so for example you've got the um the woman who's sharing a house with her sister in one of your stories the clawfoot requiem and oh, yes. commit suicide yes. and the only thing in the story basically is that she becomes convinced that even though the sister is has body been taken away she becomes convinced that her sister is still in the bath and won't pu won't pull out the plug yes yes and it gets gross but things are learned and things are discovered and relationships are changed. And is there's a sort of magic going out there and you, you sort of discover that it was the, the aunts that drove the sisters to suicide. Yes. yes. It's an awful aunt in, um, in the Rust Maidens too. That's funny. There is an awful auntie in the Rust Maidens as well. Yeah. There's you a see, lot of I, awful in my work. <laughs> I, I mean, I actually like the family, family dynamics in your stories because you have realistic family dynamics they're, they're never entirely awful or entirely wonderful yeah they're, they're, they're real and they're human and mm. I think you know I, I, I called you a unique voice in gothic fiction because I think your fiction does have your fiction is firmly within what I'd call the gothic tradition yeah um yeah. but that the voice you bring to it is very rooted in family and community and mm. space is very much part of thing. And I think one of the things that's lost from the very first, that strand of Gothic fiction where you have the, the castle, the dungeon, and that sort of thing as being mm. part of the mm. horror, part of the thing, mm -hmm. is something. Like one of the very first Gothic novels is that Castle of Otranto, isn't it? Walpole, 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 yeah. Hubert W. And Herbert W. And um, that castles, spaces, I think. And, but unlike a lot of Gothic fiction, which is castles, and, and castles, castles are distant things, aren't they? They're kind of, they're far away. And I only recently thought about this because I, and the thing that made me think about it was um, Italian horror movies from the 70s set in Britain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in Italian horror movies, from the 70s set in Britain, everyone is 15 minutes drive from a stately home. And these stately homes have these creepy things happening like black masses and stuff. And if, <laughs> have you seen all the colors of the dark yet, by the way? I don't think so. Because I know you love I the have. Love Witch. Yes, but, I do love the Love but, Witch. But all the colors of the dark is a 1972 Italian movie um, set in a London where everybody speaks Italian. I love that. I, uh, I don't think I even realized that was such a thing until you started talking about it on social I know, media. It's, I, it's I, a thing. I, I, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful. thing. I guess I did know that. I didn't realize like how many of them, when you put them together, really did make up their own think about it, How many, like, um, like the universal horror films, they're hardly ever set in English-speaking countries, aren't they? You know, they're in Transylvania. Yeah, and yet they're all Everybody speaking. speaks English. 
Yeah, oh yeah. And but but to an Italian, a Transylvanian castle is really a British stately home. The further away you get, the weirder the tourist attractions appear to the people who live far away. Yeah. But that's probably your true. writing, bringing it back to what we were actually talking about, the architecture is the old sawmill down the road or the, the foundry yes. down the road. It's the yeah. wire fence. It's yeah. the cupboards, the walk the walk-in thing from your like 1950s home. It's um, the bathroom and the claw feet on the bath in which the sister commits suicide. It's um, I love the fact that in the Clawfoot Requiem, no reference is made to the Clawfoot or what a Clawfoot is. But of course, it's oh, a yeah. bath. It's the yeah. bath. It's got claw feet. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've always loved Clawfoot bathtubs. Like, I don't have yeah. one. And the older I get, the more I'm like, no, I don't even want one. They just sound like too much work getting in and out of them. I'm getting older. Like, I don't want to have to think about 20, 30 years from now trying to get in and out of those tall, because they're usually very tall bathtubs. But like, I've always thought they were so creepy and kind of gothic. Like the fact they got these little feet, like that's so weird to me. Like who thought of that? I, I love it, but it's kind of creepy. So I'm like, yeah, we're going to yeah. do that. It's probably one of my favorite titles. It's such a simple title, but I'm like still so proud of that. <laughs> I've, I've got to be honest, there's a single story in that collection. I've, I haven't read them all, but there isn't a single story in that collection I haven't massively enjoyed. I, I just, oh, thank you. Like, I mean, I mean, the Rust Maid- Maidens is the only book so far written in the last 10 years that I've actually managed to read more than once, let alone oh. three times. Oh, which wow. I, I've, I've done it three times now. And because, I mean, I mean, you can pay writing. And another, another writer who's come up in these t- conversations is Thomas Ligotti. And okay. he, he, is, yeah. he is, of course, a bit purple. He's, he's, he's a bit fancy and purple and a bit over the top. And uh, your writing, your writing is not, it's not full of curlicues and flourishes so much as these little crystalline little windows. Hmm. You're right. You're writing, you're writing feels ra- rather than like a like fancy sort of, I don't know, a, a room with like velvet, velvet curtains and like gold painted cherubs on the moldings. Your, 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 your writing feels more like something that is, it's a large room with shadows and a walk-in wardrobe where it's very dark, which like appears in the light of day as something very clean and spare, but which nonetheless has interests and things. Um, Reminding my house, my house, was, which I'm sitting in now, was built in... Um, 1908 and okay. there isn't a single damn right angle in any of the room corners <laughs> none of the rooms the ceiling uh, they're in a single damn complete right angle here and it looks like a wonderful normal house but i'll tell you what laying carpets has been an absolute nightmare you know your your architecture it's a perfectly normal looking house. It doesn't have a single right angle in it. And it's really more spooky and interesting. I hope you oh, take that in the I spirit love- it's meant. That, that is beautiful. Oh, wow. I love that so much. Thank yeah, you. Can use that if you want. Um, but yeah, um, while Gothic castles classically are far away, you draw your Gothic horror and the body horror that comes from it from the near, from the yeah. close by, and the real yeah. and the relatable. And it's always very relatable. Even, I mean, there's one short story, um, which is basically about a set of immortal 
vampires or something that steal people's skins in order to survive but one's got a girlfriend (laughs) goes home and has a girlfriend (laughs) and but goes home and has a girlfriend and is terrified that the girlfriend will see her for what she is and be repelled and this is not the case no and that i thought was one of the most unexpectedly moving things in the book and i thought it's like moving because i think we talk about dystopias we talk about the horrible things that we do to each other in these things and sometimes it's easy to forget that there are solutions to these things and one of the solutions is community and it's the community that we find in love the sort of love that real people have is something that we don't see we don't see enough yes i i think again not love is in the way you like you said it's often used especially in storytelling as like a, a motivator like like you said like oh well somebody i love died so now i'm gonna go get revenge or like you said, the older I get, the more like romances and romantic comedies creep me out. I was just thinking of that movie. What's it called? The one with John uh, Cusack and the um, boombox. Say, is it Say Anything? Is that the name oh, of that Oh, High movie? Fidelity. No, not High Fidelity. The earlier one. Oh. I think I think it's called Say Anything. I know now somebody's oh, right, okay. like, he's, like he's holding the boombox with like Peter Gabriel playing. And it like always creeped me out as a kid because he's like going to his ex-girlfriend's house in the middle of the night with it. And I'm always like, I don't know that that's healthy behavior. And the older I get, I'm like, not healthy behavior. That's not healthy also, behavior. No one ever seduced anyone with Peter Gabriel. <laughs> I've I only ever he... seen bits and pieces of it, but I've definitely seen the ending. And I remember being like, I do not want some dude outside my window with a boombox in the middle of the night. Like, it would just upset me. Yeah, no, <laughs> and I totally. Like, I mean, I mean, totally treated as like being so romantic. And I was like, right. Again, I, I saw it when I was like nine or 10. And I'm like, is this what being a teenager is going to be like? Am I going to think this is romantic? Kind of the answer is no. A lot of, like you said, a lot of romantic comedies. And like, I, that's supposed to be like the nice way of like, you know, like, because some romances, not necessarily romantic comedies, are more tragic. And nobody's like, oh, this is an aspirational. Everybody dies at the end of Romeo and Juliet or the end of Wuthering Heights. But like romantic comedies are almost supposed to be. <laughs> that's true. The end that's of true. One, they die halfway through the end of Wuthering Heights. So oh, that's true. Brothers yeah, that's true. To adapt that, that's the true. second half of the book. But the second half of the book basically redeems and gives everything a realistic, happy ending. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's a good point, too. Like, those aren't aspirational either. But, like, I feel like if there's a lot of death in something, people might not be like, oh, this is as romantic. But romantic comedies, it's almost like, oh, well, they all end up together at the end and everybody's happy. And it's like, yeah, but the way they got there is, like, not good. And and I think it gives people this idea that, oh, this is what romance looks like, this creepy stalkery behavior, and women are supposed to swoon over it. And it's like, It's almost like this idea that men just have to be more dogged. Like, oh, you just have to keep trying harder. And it's like, if she said no, she said no, leave her alone. Yeah. Like, seriously. Oh, my God. Don't (laughs) pester her. (laughs) Don't pester. Yeah, The idea that she might actually change her mind and come round is one of the most pernicious things. And it has damaged us and it damages our relationships. I I mean, just as much as the idea of the happy ever after. 
yeah. does as well. Yeah. Because we've spent our lives dodging disappointment. There is such a thing to be discussed there. Yeah, like yeah. the fact that that is such a, a such a potent idea of like we do. We all try to avoid being disappointed or hurt rather than recognizing at least to some extent that's part of life, right? I mean, there's obviously yeah. degrees of this. There are some things that are not part of life, you know, actual criminal behavior. No one should commit a crime against you. But the small disappointments of, hey, you were rejected by somebody who's not interested in you. It's not catastrophic. It's just life. But you're right. Like where we, we try to avoid any kind of perceived disappointment at all. And it's like, that's not really realistic, especially just the everyday, you know, the everyday stuff. It's, it, it is disappointing and it's not that it, it doesn't hurt, but it's like, this is just part of being human. Right. But it, yeah, there's definitely an, a complete avoidance of that. I even see that in the writing community. I'll see people that if they get a bad review, they act like it's some kind of like referendum on who they are as a human being. Like oh, they're gosh, suddenly yeah. a terrible person and a terrible writer. And like, then they'll go online trying to get a bunch of sympathy for it. And I'm like, I don't know, like, it's not the end of the world. And I feel like that needs to be more of something that it's like, it is disappointing. I don't want to say it's not. And I don't want to downplay the experiences we have when we're disappointed because they are real. But at the same time, it's also just life. Like, that's not, that's not a, that, that's not getting like a serious, that's not getting diagnosed with cancer, right? Like, no, that's not no, something not so serious that like, your life could end it's just I mean I mean all my bad reviews are hilarious so I kind of I just find it most of them are by Nazis you know wow I must be doing something right but we're not talking about my work but yeah I I think love is a choice I think as I get older we make a conscious choice to love we can't just be guided by fiction in that but on the other hand fiction should i think reflect the realities of loving relationships and you know and there are plenty of loving relationships in your stories it's it's weird because it's like people people committing suicide in bathtubs and like collapsing into the industrial decay you know an entire book which is basically a bunch of urban myth urban myth (laughs) monsters all called mary basically from their point of view haunting people but it's weirdly wholesome (laughs) (laughs) i have have no idea if i'm actually being insulting or not but honestly i would agree with that because sometimes i'll write stuff and i'm like sometimes i'll think that it'll be like body horror and bodies are coming apart and it's like can be even really gross at times but then i'm kind of like i even say to my husband i'm like i swear it's just like it's still kind of wholesome like it's like everybody loves each other and even if it, it's hard like we're gonna come together and we're gonna figure this out yeah. it's, it's honestly true I would totally agree I, I mean I mean I mean I mean there is actually I mean I mean you know I mean, this is this is reflected from my my encomium of praise for you earlier on um I, th- I, th- I think there is a heart of goodness in in your stuff you know yeah. I, I think and I think it is possible to write horror with with a good heart behind it and for that still not to be kind of, you know, squeak or still not to be didactic and a bit kind of like um, box ticking, you can, I, I think, I think there's a true heart of goodness and love in things can actually yeah. be presented in, um, it can be presented in a way where it's just there. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be showing off about it. You can show these things life. You can show life and you can put things. I mean, you know, people, people in horror novels make bad decisions because when you're freaked out, you mm. make bad decisions. Mm. 
when, yeah. when your body is falling apart and your bone has been replaced by glass and rusted metal, you're yeah. going to start making some irrational decisions. Yeah. Yeah. That's something people a lot of times say in horror of like, oh, people make bad choices. And I'm like, yeah, but that I've never, unless it's really, really ridiculous. And especially if it's like a woman doing it and it's written by a man and almost seems like it's an insult to women. Like, oh, of course a woman would do something stupid. Beyond that, when people in horror don't make the best decisions, I'm like, I saw, like, especially now having lived through the pandemic, people losing their minds about having to wear a mask, like, just to right. prevent a spread. And, like, once you see pictures or video of people screaming at employees in a Walmart about it, like, it's like a, a person who's terrified for their life, maybe not knowing which direction to run is not that shocking to me. It, it, people don't make good decisions when they're afraid. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, it, it just, it's human, even though. It can be frustrating, I guess, as a reader. It doesn't frustrate me as a reader or viewer, like I said, unless I feel like it's coming from, unless I can start feeling like I'm seeing what the writer is trying to do. Like it, it starts taking me out of yeah. it. Like I said, like, oh, we're going to make this woman do something really dumb. And it's like, mm, I, I, I don't I, I, like I mean, that. I, I've, seen, I've the, seen a widely, widely beloved horror movie from last year, which I'm not going to name because I've raved about it enough. But essentially, it's got a woman protagonist who does a bunch of really, really stupid things. But all the stupid things she does, she she does, she does, are done to advance the plot. Mm. And mm -hmm. they're not done because they're the sort of things that she would do in that situation. Yes. Yes. Yeah, That that's that's a thing like. The stupid decisions that are just done to advance the plot. Like, even if you give me a little bit of a reason why they did it, I'm good with that. And again, you know, also if people make perfect decisions in film or, or books, you're not usually going to have a story. You're usually, right. if, if somebody makes ideal choices every time, most of the time, it's not going to be a very interesting You can story. get away with it. Yeah. Once in the blue moon, yeah. for example, that's part of the tension in Night of the Living Dead. Yes. And there's this yes. the one guy who always comes up with the correct decision. Yeah. But it's screwed over one because he's surrounded by people who don't trust him. Yeah. And two, it doesn't help him anyway because he's a black yeah. guy. And yeah. and yeah. that's and that is also that's kind of horrible. You know, it's kind of genuinely yeah. a hor horrible yeah. in the horror. But it works, but the thing I hate the most is when people know they're in a horror movie and they make decisions and make good decisions based upon being almost like, if I was in a movie, I would do this, you know, and is even if it's sort of there and that kind of, I kind of find that really, really difficult to handle. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. I'm trying to think if I've seen that done well. I think it could be done well in like a meta way if you're very careful about it. But yeah, I'm not. Scream got away it. with it once. Yes, that's a great point. Like I feel like one time was really interesting. And then all the time since have been kind of like, okay, we've already seen this. And it really only kind of worked in that meta way. Yeah. I did love Scream when it came out. I I, I, it's, it. it's just amazing that the opening scene of Scream is essentially yeah. a direct retread of a 1970s horror movie. Oh, really? Uh, okay. When a Stranger Calls. Okay, it's, yeah. It's, I um, guess so. I never really thought about the connection, but yeah. And it's, yeah. Uh, you know, it's Carol Kane. And the thing it's in been... When a Stranger Calls is that there's a twist. because we Yeah, I, I just rewatched that for the first time since I was like, I saw it as a teenager. It's a nasty and, uh, movie. 
It is. It's much nastier than I remember. Like I, I didn't really remember very much from when I watched things about 14 when I saw it. I actually was kind of bored with it when I saw it at 14. But when I rewatched it recently, my husband hadn't seen it. I'm like, okay, I think it was like one of those things on Prime that you could just watch. It, from yeah, it's and I'm on like, Prime, okay. yeah. Um, And we watched it. I'm like, whoa, this is like got some really like ew, icky scene, just really distressing stuff in it. But I'm like, wow, I'm like, that's the kind of movie that you almost wonder what they get away with today. There's so many things that I feel like we've become more conservative, at least in America, in terms of some of the stuff. That no, we I think it's true in Britain as well. I think it's yeah, interesting so. that um, in the UK, the UK certification system is kind of a bit of a, of a, of a mess anyway, but um, it works on a kind of numerical kind of like thing. They have a score sheet, number of times someone says fuck and all that sort of thing, right? And you have like, the 12A certificate, which you can only get into if you're under 12, unless you've got an adult with you. And then okay. you've got the 15 certificate, which you can only get into if you're 15 and 18, okay. if you can only get into. And then there's 18R, which is basically porn. And okay. <laughs> most horror movies now are 15 certificates. Okay. Yeah. Midsummer was an 18, but mostly they're 15 certificates mm-hmm. because there's so much that they let them get away with that, that, that they don't bother to get away with there's so much that they can yeah that they don't want to show yeah yeah that's it, it's it's interesting not that i'm like i'm not that big into really graphic horror anyways like you know really the kind of like you know really what did they call it for a while torture porn i was never yeah. really that into that to begin with but it is interesting like even just um just reading interviews lately about how like there aren't even movies with a lot of sex anymore, not even like porn movies, but even just adult movies, like not adult movies like that, but movies, movies made with for- adults. Yes. Cause that's like a joke I always have with my husband. Like I love like the late eighties, early nineties thrillers. They're kind of like, like the basic instinct, the fatal attraction, jagged mm. edge. I love those movies. They're, they're really in a lot of ways but I just think they're great like even earlier 80s like body heat or body double like well you don't see movies like that anymore movies that are just geared towards adults they might have some sex in them they probably have some violence but they're not like they're not here it's NC-17 usually if it's uh if it's uh porn and sometimes that's also for violence it does depend but uh yeah, we don't have movies like that those kind of thrillers made that way that can kind of have that sex and violence and everything that kind of push the limits a little bit like basic instinct but like you know we don't have that anymore it's gotten kind of oddly conservative which is really weird when you think we have so much more streaming and so many more outlets you don't have to rely on the mpaa because it used to be oh you can't go that far you'll get an nc-17 you'll never be able to make it in, in theaters we don't even have that anymore we don't have those limits and yet i think we're more limited in some ways than we used to be so it's strange it, it's it's weird it's going back back in history back into the 1960s hammer movies um yeah. more than once apparently um approached the british border british border film censors and as it was now it's the british border film classification but it was british border film censors then and like you know submitted a film and they're like okay this is an a certificate and they're like can we have an x they did that with the witches in 1966, which, to be honest, is now I think a PG or something, right? It's like a really, you know, it's really mild. But like Hammer really, really wanted an X certificate on all of their horror movies, right? Because it was their brand, because they wanted their movies yeah. to be scary. And that's funny. 
I and I, I kind of love that. So when when one of their horror movies didn't get an X, didn't get an X certificate as it was, which is now an 80s certificate, they were like, they were like, no, no, needs an X. Can you give it? And, and you know, the BBFC were like, really? Yeah. So it's interesting. Like it's just, I do think we've become like conservative in a lot of ways for things that it's like I don't know it, it seems strange to me and I I try to I try to comfort myself and say things constantly are shifting and the way things are right at this moment won't necessarily be the way they will be in six months or six years but it's, hard. it's hard going yeah it's hard going through this period in time I keep telling myself oh it'll get better but then I'm like will it though and I was just saying to my mom last night I'm like I think this is the end of like everything I think we're just all done and my mom's like every generation thinks that though she's like we thought that and my parents you know my parents thought that I'm like I know my my face is the same as yours I'm just being like I don't know things are really bad right now really bad really scared and I think part of the problem for that is that we actually had an intervening generational period where people thought everything was going to be fine actually between about 1991 and 1999 2000s a lot of bad stuff happened generally the theme the idea was that everything was going to be okay interesting you look at the movies made in the mid to late 90s before about 99 whether it's horror movies or thrillers and things Mm -hmm. you can sort of see a certain celebratory kind of feeling in how those films are made so for example movies like independence day um, yes yes um you know you've got like the jurassic park sequels which are very upbeat and they're really there about the wonders of science you yeah know, you know even the horror movies of that period you know they're either really meta like scream or mm. they're kind of endless retreads of sequels of franchises yeah. into the ground or they're yeah. sci-fi movies like yeah, species that's yeah. a film that's not aged well. Really? Species. I haven't watched it in a long time. Really? How not? Like, how is it not aged well? No, I'm curious. I, I, th- I, th- I think it comes from, it, it's, it comes from that period in the 90s where at the time people weren't noticing it, but where there was a huge backlash against second wave feminism. And oh. so suddenly, this is the period where suddenly the men's magazine became a thing. The glossy yes. men's magazine. Yeah, became a thing yeah. which is full of bikini clad babes but like of a higher class you know and that sort of thing particularly in the UK you know Esquire and Maxim and Loaded and magazines like that those are always popular here too so I definitely know what you're talking about that's yeah. one thing I will say about the 90s as much as a lot of people think about them positively I actually don't because oh, LGBTQ yeah LGBTQ rights I mean it was it was like it felt like a million years away back then that we were like, I honestly, you know, that's a lot the nineties are what I really remember. I was born in the eighties, but I remember the nineties better. And it just never seemed like we would ever get gay marriage legalized. When it finally got legalized in 2015 here, I was like, part of me was still shocked. I was so incredibly grateful, but growing up in the nineties, it felt like, no, there's no way that's going to happen in my lifetime because it yeah, was just miles away. lots of people. There were lots of activists. I do not want to make it sound like they weren't doing a tremendous amount of work, but it just felt like, government and even to some extent society was not moving the needle on that and like you said I feel like women's rights really got into this weird area in the 90s as well where it's just kind of like it was almost accepted like oh you've got all your rights you're good now and it's like at the same time the constant sexualization and the, and the disregard and us yeah. not being in positions of any kind of power but it's like oh you're fine stop complaining so it was like 
I think of the 90s as being hell, to be honest. Like, even though you're right, I don't think other people do. Because I even see nostalgia in our age groups, like, of like, oh, the 90s, they were so great. And I'm like, oh, maybe for some uh, maybe people, not, but no. not for a lot. Yeah. No, I know. I mean, I, I, mean, I live that. through Britpop. So, you know. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> it's just, oh, the 90s. But we're yeah. getting off topic again. I think we've talked about a lot of stuff and we've been talking for about an hour now. Um, so I think uh, we, once again, um, no conversation with me is ever conclusive, which is why my podcast is called a question and not an answer. But um, I hope that we've actually managed to talk a bit about the idea of the Gothic, about the idea of who we are in space and stuff. I think is there any, any, any point that you'd like to sort of wrap up with um, anything that you'd like to sort of say as a sort of closing salvo? I, I think that anything can be gothic. To me, any space can be gothic and certainly any time period, any, any city, any town, any house. So to me, like the gothic is everywhere. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, and that, that really does define your work. Gwendolyn, thank you so much for coming on. It's been cool. an absolute pleasure. Thank you. This was so much fun. Question Embodies is an independent podcast hosted and edited by me, Howard David Ingham. Music is by Stephen Horry. Thanks for listening.